0: It wasn't as big, particularly when we went to Jerusalem. It wasn't as big as the way I had it pictured in my mind. And our first day there, we went to the Mount of Olives. I mean, the, uh, yeah, the Mount of Olives, I'm sorry. And when you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you're looking down a, across a valley, that valley is called the Kidron Valley, and then you see the old part of Jerusalem just sitting right there in front of you. When I'd read about these places in the Bible, I would always get a a, a mental picture, if you will, and it was this big, broad expanse, but it's not. When you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you look down across that Kidron Valley. For those of you that don't remember, the Mount of Olives is where Jesus ascended into heaven. It's also where he's going to come back to this earth. The scripture tells us that. And when he comes back and his, his feet uh, get planted on the ground, that valley, uh, which is uh, what we would call over here is just a draw. In fact, David began to ta- ask uh, uh, our guide about, uh, what, about this draw right here, and you could see the puzzled look on his face like, I don't know what in the world this guy's talking about. And I told David, I said, he don't know what a draw is. <laughs> but this valley is going to split apart when Jesus comes back and puts his feet on the ground. Well, in between uh, the Mount of Olives, just at the base of the hill, there's a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm telling you, it's beautiful. It's so peaceful. We went in there and we got to uh, spend some time uh, praying in there. And there are olive trees in there. Uh, some of them you can't even reach your arm around. Now they ain't no taller than the roof. They ain't no taller. <laughs> They're not any taller. Thank you, M.J. <laughs> They're not any taller than the roof of this, uh, the ceiling in this room. They're short, but some of them are so big you can't even hardly reach around them what a time we had in there where we heard the gospel preached and we had time to go kneel beside them and pray. I'm going to talk a little bit more about those trees here in just a minute. But uh, today and for the next uh, four Sundays, do y'all realize Easter's getting close? Today and for the next four Sundays leading up uh, to Palm Sunday, I want to look back through the gospels not all we're not going to read all of it but I want to look back through the four Gospels in the accounts of, of Jesus when he was praying in the garden. You see, I know when, I, when, when and I'm sure Jeff and Teresa and, and Aunt Pat and, and David and different ones that were in there, when we got time to, to kneel down beside those olive trees and prayed where Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane there, we got to kneel down and pray and I had sunglasses on because it was bright that day and by the time I got through praying, I had to dump the tears out of my glasses. Because you get overwhelmed by where you're at. You get overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. But I want to look at these accounts over the next uh, few weeks. And, and uh, this when Jesus prayed in the garden, it was just prior to his betrayer coming and bringing along uh, the multitude of, of sword and club-wielding people uh, from the chief priests and the scribes. The Pharisees. And if you look in each of the four accounts, parts of them are identical. However, uh, each one reveals something not included in the other. Included when you read through them are the different postures of Jesus as he's praying. And you're going to see what I'm talking about. Postures, the positions of his body. Uh, They will include uh, different postures. Also included in those accounts are are, are verbal accounts. uh, Things uh, that are recorded of the things that they said. uh, Statements that they said. Some may be included in one account, but not included in another but when you read all four of them and you put all four accounts together, you get a perfect timeline. You get a perfect account of what transpired in that garden 2,000 years ago. But why do you think, why do you think God inspired these men to write it that way? Because he wants us to read all of it not just some of it, Be us being the way we are in our short attention spans, we would just read one and say, all right, that's it, that's what happened. True enough, that is what happened, but we're not getting the big picture unless we read all four accounts. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to start with Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to just read uh, uh, verses 36 through 39. Say amen when you got it, and please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John. They are often referred to, Jesus referred to them as the sons of thunder. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and he fell on his face. And prayed, saying, "Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will." Father God, we're thankful this morning for our time here together, Father, for the privilege we have to open Your Word, Father, and be fed from it, Father, to uh, to 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 be able to kneel and to pray, Father. And be ushered straight into your throne room with our petitions, Father. God, we're so thankful for that. Lord, we're thankful that you're still on the throne this morning, Father, that you are still supreme God. God, I ask this morning, Lord, that you would move me out of the way. Father, that you would place your wisdom in my head and your words in my mouth, Lord, that people hear only from you. Father, that you might be glorified here this morning. It's in Jesus' name, I pray, Amen. <clears throat> now, these events that we just read uh, right here, this account that we just read, it occurs immediately following the gathering in the upper room. Y'all remember what happened in the upper room, right? And yeah, the Lord's Supper. Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Passover. And when they, as soon as they uh, uh, left that place, uh, the gospel uh, tells us that they sang a song when they walked out. I always liked that part. It says they sang. And as they left that upper room, they made their way down here across the Kidron Valley over here to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord often prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I see why after being there. What I want to do this morning, I want to expound on these uh, few verses right here as we look at this moment when uh, the Lord Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. I want us to look at uh, the different details that uh, Matthew includes in his gospel right here. So let's look right into it. Verse 36, it says, Jesus and the disciples came to the place called Gethsemane. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about what this garden is. I told you in the beginning that we'd talk about uh, this garden. Now, in the garden, it is, it is ancient. You know, we have a hard time grasping that concept over here in the United States. See, in terms of people, if we look at our country, this part of the world right here, we'd be just a little young and just toddling around. When you go to this part of the world, over here where we went, uh, they're like uh, uh, Mickey refers to. They're in the winter of their life. They're, they're older people, kind of like Mr. Roger. But in this garden, you go in there, it's ancient, and they have those olive trees. I told you that you could barely reach around, and these trees were, some of them were 1,000 a, a years old by the time Jesus was there. Think about that, 1,000 years old. Many of them were planted by King David. And the amazing part about it is those trees are still there and they're still producing. Man, that's old. I was, as I prayed there, when I finished praying, now near the base of one of them, it was still uh, producing sprouts. And I broke off some of those and brought them home. Look at Teresa nodding her head. How precious it was. But it's beautiful there. Now, the, game, the name uh, Gethsemane, that's kind of a tongue twister if you read it, right? That name Gethsemane literally means oil press. Not only did this garden contain the olive trees, but it also contained uh, the olive press uh, where the olives would be put in and and, and would be pressed. That fine, uh, very uh, uh, wanted olive oil would come out of those olives. Now, what that was was a big, large basin. You're probably sitting here saying, why is he telling us about an olive press? Well, you just got to listen to me. There's a point to it. They're dumped in this big basin, and in the middle there's a a, a rod sticking up out of it, and a large stone wheel, and, and it would kind of pivot on that, and they'd let that wheel down, and people would go round and round, and they'd turn that big wheel, and that wheel would press down on those olives and begin to squeeze that precious olive oil out of it. They would exert an immense amount of pressure. And that first squeezing of those olives when they would dump them in there and they'd go round and round, that first squeezing that would come out, uh, they consider that the finest of the olive oil. So what did they use it for? What did they use this oil for? They've been doing this for thousands of years. Well, first, the first use they used it for was to light lamps. If you'll read in the Old Testament, not only did they use it to light lamps, but the priests would take and they would pour that olive oil over their head. That's called anointing themselves with oil. And the reason why they did this, they would pour it on them, and it was to be set apart as holy men, these first priests. They would dump this oil on their heads. We're also commanded in James chapter 5 to do what? What? Bring the sick before the elders of the church and do what? Anoint their head with oil. Now think about all these things as we're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane here. It's called the oil press and and this is where they got the oil and this is what the oil is used for. You see, at this moment, we begin reading right here in the 26th chapter of Matthew in verse 36. Our Lord entered the oil press. He entered the place where the weight and the measure of his purpose began to weigh down on him. begin to press on him. He began extracting from himself the oil that would fuel the light of the world. The oil that would be poured over our head. You hear me? The oil that would be poured over our head at the moment of salvation. Setting us apart as holy men. His righteousness imputed upon us. See, it ain't nothing uh, that we did. It's all Him. Him. Reconciled back to the father. He began to extract the oil from himself that would be poured out on the heads of the sick. I'm not talking about just physically sick. I'm talking about the sin sick. Restoring them back to a right relationship with the father. Look what he tells the disciples here in in, in verse, uh, at the end of uh, verse 36 there. He says, sit here while I go and pray over there. Verse 37, he says, he he took uh, with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. It's not written there, but I'm telling you who they are. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. In verse 38, Jesus begins to feel the weight of that oil press. He says to the three, His soul is sorrowful, even to death. Now I'm not going to dig into that part. I'm saving that for another one of the other Gospels, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is, uh, but it goes into vivid detail of just how sorrowful he is to the point of death. Can you imagine that pressure? Can you imagine that burden that is causing such sorrow that it almost kills him? But the thing about it, this sorrow and this anguish that he's feeling uh, has nothing to do with uh, having a fear of men or the uh, physical torment that he would experience leading up to the cross and on the cross. You see, that's not why he's sorrowful. That's not why. He's not afraid of that. He's sorrowful because within hours, he would be separated from his Father. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in harmony. They're always connected. They work together. But for this moment in time, uh, we haven't approached it there. We'll talk about that as we get around Easter. But for one moment in time, the son is separated. You don't know why he had to be separated? Because all our sin was fixed to be poured out on him. You see, God's not going to be in the same place sin is. So he had to be separated from his son. That sin was going to be poured out on him. He would be separated from his father in the full cup of God's divine fury. Against sin would be his and his alone to drink. I don't think we grasp the concept of, uh, uh, of what happened there. He tells his, his disciples, the three. He tells them to stay here and watch with me as he goes on a little bit farther, farther, to be alone with his father. You see, Peter, James, and John, uh, they were his closest confidants here on earth uh, as he went about his earthly ministry, as he ministered to others here on earth. You know, the Bible talks about all, uh, oftentimes Peter, James, and John were the ones that were uh, uh, fortunate enough to be on the Mount of Transfiguration to see him in his glorified body. He allowed Peter, James, and John to see certain things. They were his closest confidant, but at this moment in time... <clears throat> They weren't enough. He needed to be alone with his father. You know, it's a wonderful thing to have people that we can can talk to. You know, when we're facing a difficult situation or, or, or something is hurting us or something has made us angry, you know, having somebody to talk to is a wonderful thing. To have a confidant to pray with, to hold you accountable. Well, that was a tough one to swallow sometimes, isn't it? My little wife right here is probably my closest confidant. I can share anything with her. But sometimes they're not enough. You need to be alone with the Father. I'm talking shut out the world, be quiet, be alone with the Father. Jesus was having one of those times right here. You got to go be alone. With the Father. Verse 39, it begins with the Lord Jesus falling on his face to pray. We don't do much of that, do we? No position symbolizes humility more than being on your face. Prostrate on the ground. When we look at this position or this posture of prayer, it demonstrates perfectly the beatitude. You all know the beatitudes, right? It's when Jesus starts preaching the Sermon on the Mount. This one demonstrates being uh, on your face before God, demonstrates perfectly as he's beginning, actually, the third verse in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says that he was meek and lowly in heart. This is Jesus describing himself. Being on your face before God is a right response in the face of a crisis. When we look back into the Old Testament in in, in Numbers uh, chapter 20, uh, the children of Israel are crying out to Aaron and Moses. You know, it seems like they did that a lot. They were crying out to Aaron and Moses while they were in the wilderness about not having no water. They didn't have no water. Moses, y'all have led us out here and we ain't got no water. And they begin to cry out and and just wart them and grumble and carry on and complain. And I'm going to tell you, uh, from, from our experience in the wilderness there, and I'm fixing to, MJ may need to correct me here, but there ain't nothing out there. There's nothing green, there's no water, there's not anything but just rocks and mountains and dirt. So finding water was difficult, but in Numbers chapter 20, they begin to cry out to Aaron and Moses, and, and Scripture tells us that Aaron and Moses went to the door of the tabernacle and they fell on their face before God and began to cry out to him on behalf of the people. In Joshua chapter 7, where, uh, where, where the Lord gave Joshua specific instructions uh, when it came to, to, to conquering Jericho, what did he tell them to do? kill everything destroy everything did they do that no Achan and his son saw some stuff they decided they wanted to keep and as a result scripture tells us that God got mad they were disobedient they were sinful God got mad and he allowed just a few thousand people uh, from from Ai to, to, to soundly defeat the Israelites. Scripture also tells us that Joshua and the elders tore their clothes and they fell on their face before God, before the Ark of the Covenant. You see, they knew that God was the only one to deliver them in their time of crisis. And our Lord Jesus Christ right here is petitioning the Father in a time of crisis. He's on his face before God. How many times do we do that? I'm going to be honest with you, uh, Paul, as you, Paul, Paul uh, the Apostle Paul says uh, that of, of the sinners, among the sinners, he's chief. How many times when we're faced with a, a, a time of crisis, whether it be a lost loved one, a sick loved one, a financial crisis, uh, something happened to your children, it doesn't matter what it is, how many times do we fall on our face before God? No, we'll sit there and try to figure it out on our own. When a right response would be being on our face before God alone, petitioning the Father. I always love the way as you read Scripture, people, uh, myself included, uh, years ago would be, Well, I just don't understand. I just don't know what to do. Not only does Jesus tell you, He shows you. You just got to read it. <laughs> What does he say when he begins to pray? Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In Old Testament scripture, when we, Jesus used the word, the cup. Old Testament scripture, the cup, symbolized God's divine wrath against sin you know when you read that you often wonder like wonder why he said that why did he use that word but if you dig into it in Isaiah chapter 51 uh, the cup is referred to as the cup of my fury those are God's words in Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 27 uh, he speaks this of the cup This says the Lord God of Israel. Now, I don't know about y'all. When I read that, it lets me know. This is God the Father himself speaking through his prophet Jeremiah. Look what he says. This, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more. That tells me that drinking uh, the cup of God's divine fury has serious implications. And this is what Jesus is asking him. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You see, it's in this moment right here as he's praying, as he's alone on his face with his father, petitioning his father, he's realizing that the next day he knows. He knows what's going to happen. You see, he'd been prophesying this day since the time he got on this earth and started walking around. He's been talking about it, telling people about it. But he knows that the next day, that, uh, as Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 says, that he will bear the sins of many. In fact, he will bear the sins of everyone. He will also bear the fullness of divine wrath, and it will fall all on him. You see, this is the price of the sin that he bore. And he paid it in full. I love that old song. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He paid it all. He paid it in full. I love that song. And his cry on the cross. Y'all remember what he said when he was hanging on the cross when he cried out? You see this cry. My father, my father, why have you forsaken me? You see, it reflects the bitterness of the cup that he was given. Finally, as we close, he says this. He ask him, Lord, if it be possible that the cup pass from me. But immediately he follows it with, not as I will, but as you will. You see this statement right here does not imply it, reply, it implies no conflict between the father and the son you see I've heard people look at that and they go well look they're conflicted there he don't want to do that that's not what it's implying but what it is it, it, it graphically reveals how Jesus even in his flesh We forget about that. And we always talk about Jesus being 100% God, 100% man, but what does it mean to be wrapped up in this flesh here on this earth? It means that Jesus had the uh, the same drawing of this flesh. But yet he didn't surrender to it, did he? You see, that flesh still didn't want to endure that. But when he says this all in one statement, not as I will, but as you will. You see, our guide referred to that place when we were in that. He called it the garden where the decision was made. Jesus made that decision right there. Not as I will, but as you will. See, we have that, we have that decision before us every day. Every day, anytime this flesh uh, wants us to go uh, down a different path, we have that option, we have that moment right there where we can say, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus, even in his flesh and in his humanity, he surrenders his will to the will of the Father in all things right up to death this morning you may be here this morning you may be facing a serious crisis thank God I don't have to be faced with the crisis of bearing the sins of humanity but you still face crisis here nonetheless nonetheless Maybe you like I've been sometimes trying to figure it out on your own, trying to figure out a way to make it better, way to fix it. But the best way to do it is to do like Jesus did, the example he gave us, fall on your face before God. Be alone with the Father. Surrender all things. See, that's what he means. Surrender all things to him. Any brokenness, any sorrow, any anxiety, anything, give it to Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never surrendered anything to Him. Maybe you've never given your life to Him. Maybe you you have never realized until this moment, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, not me. Maybe you've never realized, but the Holy Spirit has been telling you, Hey, you're lost. You're a sinner. You've never never surrendered anything to the Lord. (laughs) Maybe you're here this morning and you, you are born again. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you've given your life to the Lord, but you haven't surrendered all things to Him. I want to have a moment of invitation. The altars to be open. If you fit in in any of those categories, I want to encourage you, if the Holy Spirit's convicting your heart in any of those ways, today's the day to get it right. Today's the day to surrender all things to Him. As Brother Lance and Mr. Roger play and sing. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I hear Would you stand the your Savior feet? say Thy strength indeed is fall, Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all and all. Jesus paid it all. oh to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.